You are listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nickaruk, episode 15, talking about the female brain. And speaking of female brains, firstly, I want to wish all the mothers of all kinds, because motherhood has many faces and takes on many, many different forms, a happy Mother's Day. I hope you had a wonderful day last week. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever heard the phrase, men are from Mars and women are from Venus? No matter what you may interpret that to mean, the bottom line is that men and women are different in many ways, but today we're going to talk specifically about the differences between the male and female brain. So when I was younger, I used to love watching movies over and over again, like on repeat. Like I would watch a movie, rewind it. Yes, I said rewind. See kids, back in the day, we had these things called videotapes. And after watching a movie, they had to be rewound back to the beginning of the tape in order to play it again. So you know what? Ask your parents or what am I thinking? Google it. (laughs) So I'd watch the movie, rewind it and watch it again, maybe more than once. Anyway, when DVDs came out with the director's commentary, I was hooked. I'd watch the movie, then watch it again with the commentary, then watch it a third time to catch all the stuff that they mentioned in the commentary. (laughs) Anyway, the point is that people thought I was crazy, but most of my friends wouldn't even watch a movie more than once, period, never mind, in a row. Well, This is how I knew my husband was for sure the one for me. So he used to do the exact same thing. Like angels sang down from the heavens when he told me that. Soulmates, we we also have like the same taste in movies for the most part. I mean, he thoroughly enjoys horror movies and I am still traumatized from the Disney movie from the 80s called Watcher in the Woods. Like I can't even go look in the mirror at night because of it. Um, But anyway... There are plenty of movies that we do both enjoy, including, of course, Harry Potter. And of course, we love the books too. But for weeks near the beginning of our relationship, we used to work our way through the series of Harry Potter movies from one to five. That's all that had been released at that point. So each night we would watch one. And then when we got up to number five, Order of the Phoenix, we would circle back to number one, The Philosopher's Stone, and repeat the process. And at times, like we would alternate Pirates of the Caribbean, but um, we definitely have an affinity for Harry Potter. Now, stay with me. I promise this is going somewhere. So Harry, in Order of the Phoenix, has a crush on a character named Cho, and he's had a crush on her for over a year. And finally, in this movie, they connect and kiss. But Cho is crying when that happens. So when Harry finally spills to his two besties, Ron and Hermione, that he kissed Cho, their conversation goes something like this. The friends ask Harry how it was. He says, wet. (laughs) They give him an odd look and he elaborates, saying that she was crying. So Ron jokes, that bad at it, are you? And Hermione interjects and defends Harry by saying that she's sure Harry's kissing is not the problem and that Cho spends half her time crying these days. And Ron jokes again, saying, you'd think a bit of snogging would cheer her up. But Hermione, exasperated, and JK Rowling obviously tells this far better than I ever could, so I'm going to let her words take over here and read from page 405 from Order of the Phoenix. Hermione sighed and laid down her quill. 
Well, obviously she's feeling very sad because of Cedric dying. Then I expect she's feeling confused because she liked Cedric and now she likes Harry and she can't work out who she likes best. Then she'll be feeling guilty, thinking it's an insult to Cedric's memory to be kissing Harry at all. And she'll be worried about what everyone else might say about her if she starts going out with Harry. And she's probably can't work out what her feelings towards Harry are anyway, because he was the one who was with Cedric when Cedric died. So it's all very mixed up and painful. Oh, and she's afraid she'll... Um, she's going to be thrown off the Ravenclaw Quidditch team because she's been flying so badly. A slightly stunned silence greeted the end of the speech. Then Ron said, one person can't feel all that at once. They'd explode. Just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, said Hermione Hermione nastily. And there you have it. (laughs) Men from Mars, women from Venus. And it's not just apparent in fantastical fiction or getting lost on a drive with a man in the car who refuses to ask for directions. It's neuroscience. Now, on a static brain image like an MRI, despite some claims to the contrary, there is no telling just by looking at the image whether the brain belongs to a male or female. In 2005, there was a book released that garnered a lot of attention because it claimed to have finally discovered the truth about the gendered brain. And among many of its claims was that men had six and a half times more gray matter than women, which explained why men are better at math, quote unquote, and another claim, and that women had 10 times as much white matter, making them better multitaskers. So for many reasons, these findings were invalid and inaccurate. And there's even a term used for them. It's called neurosexism. (laughs) So interesting. So the truth is, and as technology has advanced, um, so has the accuracy of our knowledge and understanding. And the truth is that the brain size as so brain size increases with body size and certain features such as the ratio of gray to white matter or the cross sectional area of the nerve tract called the corpus callosum scale slightly, but not linearly with brain size. But these are differences in degree, not kind. So there's no way to tell from an image if a brain is male or female. So then why are we so different? Well, here's the fascinating part. Even though our brains are not predictably or identifiably different in terms of physical structure, they are significantly different in how they are wired and how they function. So the corpus callosum is a bundle of nerve fibers that connects the left and right sides of the brain. Women's brains are more connected. They have a bigger corpus callosum, you could say. So women's ability to more effectively solve problems is attributed in part to this increased connection because it means that they're able to more readily access both sides of their brain in considering question a problem or issue. And if you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you've heard me mention Dr. Dr. Joe Dispenza before, and I have a major brain crush on this man. Dr. Joe, uh, like, I pretty much it's an intellectual infatuation, if you will. (laughs) So Google him and you will soon become a brain groupie too. So buy all the books, follow him on social, just trust me, it will blow your mind and change your life. Anyway. Last week, around Mother's Day, Dr. Joe shared a video snippet on his Instagram from one of his workshops in which he reverently celebrates and endorses women as the best leaders. He says that we are 
we are far too critical of ourselves, hashtag truth, and that we are largely unaware of the power we hold between our ears. So Dr. Joe and his team have done thousands of brain scans during his events. He conducts um, functional scans that record what the brain is doing, how it's reacting, which areas are activated during various points in his event. And from these scans, he reports that when men are presented with a choice or a problem, there's virtually no change in their brain activity. So they choose a response or action and it's done. Even when an alternative response is suggested to them, like whispered in their ear, for example, like, I think we're supposed to turn right there. They remain unchanged. I'm going left. Neurologically speaking, it's all black and white to them. Women's brains, on the other hand, lightning storm, he says. Their whole brain lights up on the scan. They recruit all the areas in the process of evaluation and consideration of the problem. They bring in the jury. They poll everyone. When making a choice, they do so not just for themselves. They consider the whole, the community. Their brain is looking at all the possibilities simultaneously. They get in touch with the feeling of every experience before it happens. They make a choice for the greater good, um, for the best of the community. And when you think about this in terms of evolution, it makes sense. So traditionally speaking, women almost exclusively had the responsibility of caring for the young. So every decision they made affected not just themselves, but the survival and well-being of others. So this, says Dr. Joe, is true leadership, and I would agree. I mean, it's why Ron and, her, Ron and Harry couldn't survive without Hermione. If you're questioning that, watch or read book seven. So she does all the packing in that magic bag of hers. She plans all the places they'll go. She casts their protective enchantments, enchantments. She comes up with all the plans, and she leads the trio time and again out of danger. Another interesting difference between... Um, the male and female brain is the chemical makeup of the brain. So you've probably heard about the left brain and right brain before, the two hemispheres. Well, there is something really intrigued. There's some really intriguing research happening right now. And um, a deeper understanding is unfolding around the brain hemispheres. But as we understand it now, as beings, our brains develop right to left, gross motor to fine. The left side is understood as our mathematical, analytical, linear side, which has the neurosexist title of male, the male side. Of course, it's not to say that women can't be mathematical, analytical, and linear. It's just that that's what it's been termed. Again, neurosexism. So it's also the side that dopamine lives. So dopamine lives in the left brain. Now, if you remember back in episode one, we talked about the neural importance of celebration and how chemicals like dopamine support neural health. Dopamine is our motivator. It keeps us engaged and motivated and active, like doing things, checking things off your to-do list and wanting to do more. The right side is understood as our creative side, our passionate, sensual side, or our female side. This is where our serotonin lives, another neurochemical we discussed in episode one. And again, this is not to say that men can't be creative, passionate, or sensual, just, you know. The important thing to know about dopamine and serotonin is that while we control our own levels of dopamine, um, we 
we raise it by checking things off uh, our list, we, by celebrating, etc. We cannot control our levels of serotonin on our own. That's done by external factors like receiving positive reinforcement, praise, and recognition. So when we receive those things, our serotonin levels increase. And an increase in serotonin levels um, causes an increase in dopamine. So think of it like this. Let's say you rocked your TPA or you handled a recess issue like a pro or you presented in an assembly and it was fantastic and your admin noticed and they thanked and praised you for it and they told you how wonderful you are, how impressed they were, how much they admire you for trying something new. In response, your serotonin level goes up and in return, uh, in turn, that fires your dopamine as well. So now your motivation to do that, which resulted in the praise again, increases, and the likelihood that you will therefore do it again increases. Essentially, your brain is like a dog in training. Um, now, here's where we differ, men and women. And for the men listening who have a woman in your life, significant other, mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, friend, colleague, whatever, pay attention here. Men have twice the number of serotonin oh, I can't say this word, serotonergic, serotonergic receptors as women. So what does that mean? Well, it means that women need twice as much positive reinforcement from our external environment as men to drive up our serotonin and dopamine levels. Twice as many thank yous from the people we've helped, twice as many good jobs or well dones or you look great as men. So women need twice as much positive reinforcement as men, like on a neurological level. So remember, we're talking about brain science here. The importance of this cannot be overstated because sadly, women are more susceptible to brain-based illnesses, um, including depression. And with depression, there is a lack of motivation to do anything, like a lack of interest, um, connection and joy. So if a woman's serotonin level is low, her dopamine levels will therefore also be low. And we know that dopamine is what drives us to do things. It's our motivation driver. So if her dopamine levels are low, she loses her motivation, her purpose, her drive, and therefore her connection, and she falls into depression. So last year in February, my husband and my parents took my four-year-old daughter to Whistler for, for the week. So the idea of a week alone in my house was delicious to me. I mean, ugh, like all the things I could accomplish and the friends I could connect with. However, when the week arrived, it brought with it some nasty weather, some nasty winter weather, it was February, resulting in a snow day that week and the cancellation of all my social visits that I had planned. Um, and by the end of the week, I had lost any desire to attack anything to do on my to-do list. Um, I was like wallowing in my own loneliness in the cold and dark and began wondering if anyone even cared about me at all. So knowing this now, I think that in the absence of the positive reinforcement I'm used to from my loved ones, my serotonin levels must have dropped significantly, resulting in a drop in my dopamine and therefore the loss of motivation to do much of anything really. And I mean, it was bad for me. So not only is the absence of reinforcement detrimental, but imagine now if there was a negative reinforcement and a consistent negative reinforcement. So for example, a woman puts on her full effort to surprise her partner and excitedly and carefully she applies makeup, does her hair and nails, shaves the legs, the whole nine yards. 
The partner comes home and like snickers, not only ignores, but snickers and says like, why are you dressed like that? Or worse, like you look ridiculous. So neurologically speaking, this is devastating. Already needing two times the serotonin, now she's depleted. So in this, if this pattern repeats, eventually she loses the motivation to try again and eventually the motivation to try anything. So, and this is important, especially if you're a boss or someone in a role of perceived power, like admin to teacher, mother to daughter, I don't know, queen to subjects, uh, teacher to female student. To get the best out of the female brains in our lives, we need to make sure we're delivering twice as much encouragement along the way in order to optimize performance and health. Um, another, and get the kids out of the room for this one, another super effective best bang, quote unquote, for your buck in raising those serotonin levels and oxytocin for that matter, which is affectionately called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone because it's released during positive physical contact, is sex. So sex is the biggest positive reinforcement for women because it has um, the component of increased vulnerability and investment, right? So your investment of vulnerability and emotional trust is big. So the payoff is huge. So the brain lights up during sex and orgasm. Um, our vitals are better, our parasympathetic nervous system is activated, our digestion improves, our immunity is enhanced, our endorphins upregulate. So many neurological and other benefits. And doctors recommend two to three times a week for optimal female brain health. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> so there's also another significant difference between the male and female brain behavior. And it has to do with something called the infradian rhythm. So you may have heard of the circadian rhythm, which refers to the cycle of a 24 hour day. And our bodies are supposedly in tune to this rhythm. But once again, neurosexism has influenced our societal, societal and cultural conduct, right down to our workday, the products and promotions on the market and how they're advertised to us. The 3 to 5pm slump that has been conditioned into us uh, as a result of research uh, done with males. So males experience cycles of 24-hour periods. Between 3 and 5 p.m., generally speaking, testosterone and cortisol levels drop to their lowest concentration of the day. And as a result, concentration, mood, and energy drops. So this discovery led to a societal and cultural response, which centered around the male circadian rhythm. So advertising medication, energy boosting products, all sold to men and women alike, were in response to these findings around the male circadian rhythm. And the problem is that the things that are being suggested that we buy and try, the diets, the exercise, they're all ignoring this different rhythm that women experience and are actually disrupting our endocrines, which is why there's an increase in hormonal issues in women right now, despite the increase in the wellness information available. So that's because most of the research and the reason we know so very little about this is done on men and postmenopausal women and doesn't account for the up to 25% change in the female brain that occurs in a very predictable pattern during this 28-day cycle and the effects on our cognitive interests and abilities. 
So during this during our reproductive years, women go through something called the infradian cycle, which is a 28 day long cycle and it involves four phases. And therefore, um, in a sense, it's kind of like a longer day. So if you look at our day in terms of 28 day cycle, as compared to the 24 hour day that men have, like this is in terms of planning. So let me just elaborate. So knowing about understanding and planning for and around these phases can really help us leverage our brain function and cognitive productivity for optimal performance. So for example, if we project map over the 28 day period, as opposed to the 24 hour period, we can leverage our natural brain strengths and tendencies at each stage and increase our performance without increasing our stress. So this is different neuroactivity involved in each of these four phases. So for example, the follicular phase or the initial phase, initiation phase is a time for brainstorming, planning, idea generation, starting new things, beginning projects. So I'm thinking like unit planning, if that's, if you're planning units or year long, you know, um, what are they called? Long-term plans for your year, all that stuff, brainstorming with your team. Those are all great things to do during this first initiation phase or follicular phase. Whereas in the ovulation phase or collaboration phase, we experience a surge of estrogen and estrogen is the brain hormone referred to as the master regulator. It is in charge of functions like immunity, growth, plasticity, it triggers glucose metabolism to make energy. So our brains eat glucose. That's what gives us energy. Um, a surge in estrogen also stimulates verbal and social centers of the brain. So that makes us optimally communicative and social. So it's a good time to collaborate, to do presentations, to give talks. It's an optimal time for networking, getting together with friends. And thinking in terms of evolution, this makes total sense to me because this is when we're fertile and so we want to be social to attract a mate. I love how this comes together. Anyway, in the luteal phase or the completion phase, it is a time to do deep work. So you can schedule big chunks of time to get things done, to bring things to completion. So hormonal levels have you interested in task and detail-oriented work in this phase. So I'm thinking like blitzing the lesson planning, putting final touches on project plans, report card writing, all those kind of things that need completion. And then the last phase, the menstrual phase or the reflection phase is the phase of highest connection between the two hemispheres, left and right hemispheres of the brain. So they communicate maximally across the corpus callosum in this phase. So it's a good time for... Uh, evaluation, budgeting, problem solving, data examination, again, reflecting. So looking back at your unit or your project-based experience or assessment data and planning for the next. So like that formative assessment. And obviously this is not exclusive to your professional life, but is applicable in all areas, motherhood, friendship, relationships, self-care, all of it. Whew, okay, wow. <laughs> we covered a lot in this episode. It wasn't my intention to jam it all in today, but I just couldn't stop myself. I find this all so fascinating, um, especially as a woman, 
And I hope you did too. So next time you watch Harry Potter or you want to be critical of yourself uh, or you feel the need for some praise or you wonder why you can't concentrate, listen to this again. Give yourself a bit of grace and think about your amazing brain and how you can leverage it to your advantage. And remember, always ask yourself, how can I use this? Why must I use this? And when will I use this? All right. Until next week, Teaching Brains. Bye for now.